This coverage of Legal Week brought to you by Legal Talk Network, with many great podcasts to make your next commute or workout informative and educational. To improve your practice and stay in the know, visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com. And now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to On the Road with Legal Talk Network. I'm Dan Linna, and it's a pleasure to be here with you. Today, we are recording from Legal Week 2020 in New York City. Joining me now, I have James Shear and Jordan Thompson. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Thank you. Before we go to our topic, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Where do you work, and what do you do? And let's start with James. I'm a partner at Baker Hostetler here in New York, and I co-chair our emerging tech team under the data asset and digital management group. And I also do a lot of work with artificial intelligence and some of the other areas we play in, including like information governance, blockchain, and I'd, I'd say more of the esoteric issues that come up during the practice of law. Thanks, James. Jordan? Hi, uh, I'm the Deputy General Counsel and uh, Privacy Officer at New York Institute of Technology. Uh, we're a university uh, based here in New York. We have about 10,000 students here in New York. We have a medical school with campuses both on Long Island and Arkansas. Uh, and we have uh, global campuses in China, Abu Dhabi, and um, Vancouver, British Columbia. I primarily handle a lot of the uh, tech transfer um, agreements at the school in terms of uh, getting stuff onto the cloud. And I also, uh, uh, in my role as privacy officer, I, I handle and implement policy. Great. So thanks, Jordan. So I just, we, I just came for your guys' panel algorithmic malpractice and lawfare. So the first thing I'm going to ask you about is I think there's a tendency in this space for us to really frame this in a negative way and to create a lot of fear around it. But, you know, but that's kind of my opinion, and maybe I'm misguided on this. And, and I worry, though, that sometimes, that, especially as lawyers, we're, we're really good at spotting the risks in these spaces, right? But how important is uh, maybe for us to also think about the benefits and make sure that we're having a balanced discussion in this area? But, I, I mean, it'd be interesting to hear your perspectives on that. So as in-house counsel, my job is always to say yes to things. And when I've been presented with these sorts of ideas and programs and uh, by faculty and administration at the university, my uh, initial reaction is to try to make it happen. And I often tell my client, the university, that we're both looking at the same end game. We just have different ways of getting there. That being said, uh, given the fact that this is uh, so, so emerging right now, there are a lot of questions uh, being asked, and uh, those questions need to be asked. I think right now the law hasn't really caught up to it, so there is a bit of a leeway involved. But to your point, yeah, I, I think you know everybody's looking at the risk. That's our in inherent nature as lawyers, but there is a, a lot of opportunity to find uh, the path forward here. James, what do you say on that? Yeah, I mean, I want to help my clients get to yes as well. And I'd argue there's the, the potential for some inevitability with this practice. So it's going to happen. Things are going to be moving forward. I mean, one of the challenges we have, at least for the, the intersection of lawyers and clients on these issues, is what about it predicates that interaction? So it's, it's great if you're going to do something and you think it's going to work out well, but maybe that's not the opportunity you have to reach out to me to add another cost to the mix. We have to highlight where our involvement can be critical and supportive. 
And, and I want my clients to want to speak with me. I don't want to just shut everything down. I want to find a good path forward, and I think that requires a, a good and better and more detailed understanding of what it is they're trying to do. What kind of things should we be doing as lawyers to better prepare ourselves to work with our clients, whether we're the lawyer in-house working directly with the clients or, or a lawyer at, a, at an outside law firm? I mean, how can we do What sort of level of technical sophistication, for example, do we I, need I, to have? I think, it, you know, from an in-house lawyer perspective, it's being involved uh, in the project management stage from the very beginning, uh, not coming in once the vendor's been already been identified, the, the terms have been identified, it's coming in at the RFP stage, it's helping to identify what the potential risks might be involved, and sort of assisting in the bid process as well as ultimately the contract process. I mean, it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all, and it, it yeah. depends on the deal. Also, I mean, my guess is we're going to see clients moving to an area where you have an expectation of a certain amount of level of technical competence. And part of that's covering the ABA rules. Part of it's just an expectation that if you know my work, you know my business, you're going to know this tech because it's integral to what I do. And for you to counsel me on these things, you've got to get and understand what I do. And one of the challenges then is with whom within the organization are you speaking? Are you talking to the tech IT people? Are you talking to the, the decision makers? And what do they understand about both what they think the decisions are and what's actually happening? It, it's a challenge because we weren't trained necessarily in technology coming into or through law school. We're catching up. And some people have a little bit more bent than others. Some see this as an interesting area, um, an opportunity for growth. So that's great, but I really do believe most attorneys are going to have to know this. They're, they're going to have to have that base level understanding. And then in the same way we've done for decades, we can become experts for a day as well. Get in there, understand the technology, do that deep dive, do what's necessary for the client to support the decision, or sometimes to say no. And, and that's okay as well. Yeah. Well, I share the belief that lawyers are going to need to know this, right? I mean, you see this digital world developing around us. We're going to need digital governance, our clients, right? So the part of it is is just thinking about what law and regulation ought to be in place. And then our clients now more and more, they're using this in all sorts of different areas. What sort of ways are you seeing universities use artificial intelligence? We're seeing it both in, uh, in recruitment and uh, the retention of uh, our students. You know, we've been focusing a lot on, on retention of students, keeping the students who have, you know, come to your school for their first year. You know, there's been numerous studies that, you know, keeping students is a lot cheaper than uh, recruiting new students. And so what we're sort of seeing in the uh, AI uh, specter is uh, tools that are um, using data to identify students who might be at risk of not succeeding or even dropping out. So the theory is, you, you know, you can use that AI technology to identify those students in early stage and then, um, you know, give them the advisement and counseling they need to succeed where they otherwise wouldn't in the absence of such advisement or counseling. And obviously there's a lot of issues attached to uh, the data that's being used. Uh, some of the data is, you know, zip code, socioeconomic status, things, things like that. And those create a, a litany of issues um, that, you know, as a lawyer make me a little anxious. Yeah. Well, let, let's, let me just ask a follow-up question then, I guess, about that. And, and so maybe we take our lawyer hat off a little bit and think more, bro more broadly as well, too. And, and we know that I think sometimes we've, we fail to think about the status quo. And right now we've got these different processes, whether you're a doctor deciding how to treat people or you're making hiring decisions. We know there's discrimination in these decisions. Like we make these snap judgments as, as humans. We have biases. Sometimes we exercise 
discrimination. I, I mean, are we doing enough to think about, instead of just worrying about the potential for bias in the algorithm, to say, well, wait a second, the status quo doesn't work that great in a lot of ways either. How can we use these tools to improve the status quo? Well, I, I think that's that, that's a great question, and I, I think I think there needs to be more input from um, you know social engineers in the process as opposed to technical engineers who don't consider the laws that we work with, and that's certainly something that needs to be uh, caught up in in terms in this sector. Yeah, yeah. Well, that goes back to what James I think was saying about lawyers needing to know this, and and probably I'm biased as a lawyer, but like I think one of the challenges is yes, we need other we need multidisciplinary teams building these tools. I think lawyers could add a lot of value being involved in that process too. Related to that question, James, what are you seeing happen on the on the law and regulation? side of this? Like, I mean, where are there opportunities? People worry about like, oh, we don't want to put the brakes on innovation, but where are the opportunities maybe for lawyers and policymakers to get more engaged and, and let's create some frameworks here that can guide innovation in the right direction? I mean, there are, there are literally hundreds of proposed frameworks right now, and they range from the IEEE and covering all the engineers through a number of what we call soft law principles that are being proposed by universities. And I'll say there's this Euler diagram of overlaps between and among a lot of people who are part of that discussion. And, and that, I think, actually supports what you're saying about an interdisciplinary team. So you have people who have been part of prior discussions before, we mentioned this on the panel, a similar and the, the, the very first conceptions of principles and how these can be kind of uh, extrapolated out to, to factor into what we're doing now. It's a great opportunity for lawyers to be involved in these discussion processes. Yeah. There are data privacy rules that already require certain types of transparency when it comes to algorithmic action and results. What does it mean to audit those things? What we don't want to do is trail. We want to be involved in those discussions. It's not just a matter of making sure you've got the right teams while you're, you're developing or executing on an algorithm. It's bringing those people into the room so that if you are creating these soft law ethical standards that are going to help guide, and they can't be too detail-oriented because we want them to, to move and change and be flexible, they have to work for the people whose activities they're going to direct. And in order for them to work, we have to have those people as part of those discussions. And, and I've seen that, and I think that's great. And I would encourage any lawyers who are thinking about playing in this space, there's a learning curve, to be certain, but there are amazing opportunities. This is where a lot of practice is going to be a decade from now. You get to be in on the ground floor if you take this opportunity. And there's, there's very little barrier to entry if you're willing to put in the work and involve yourself in some of those discussions. Well, just a follow-up question on that. I think the the word black box gets overused here. And I think, I mean, I kind of think like when we talk about humans, humans are black boxes in a lot of ways too, right? We don't know why they decided things. They give explanations after the fact, but, that, you know, but they, they might not even really understand. But we talk about auditability and transparency. And sometimes we think like, oh, well, just because it's deep learning, there's zero auditability, zero transparency. But asking questions like about basic data science processes, where did the data come from? What kind of samples do you have? What does the, where you're deploying it mean? kind of where the data, I mean, there, there are other ways that we can be thinking more broadly about what these terms about explainability, transparency, auditability mean. Is that fair to say? Or? Sure. And this is our opportunity to be involved in that process because maybe transparency is not the end goal. We've seen standards that are proposed by different governmental bodies who don't want everything to be transparent because you don't want someone to come along and game the system. Yeah. There's a fairness aspect here. You look at what you're starting to balance as far as efficacy, but it goes to what should be. And it's not a matter of the can, but it's a matter of the may. May you draft something, may you work within the system. What's the end result? Of course, the, the beauty and some of the irony is 
we'll probably get to the point where in order to properly ascertain what decisions are being made, we're going to have to have AI engines that are doing that for us because the quantitative complexity is going to be such that you can't. We can't comprehend it. And I'd say for the, the black box part, we're already comfortable there. How many Bay Area people, if their parents ask them what they do, they're like, well, I do a bunch of stuff because it moves so quickly. To the parents' minds, I mean, that's a black box job. It's not mm. the doctor, or lawyer, or yeah. dentist paradigm. We're moving into an area where we are being flexible in, in approach. And we, as lawyers, have to keep being lawyers in supporting what our clients are doing, even if they're not getting in trouble, to help guide that so we can put them in the best position. I mean, that's, that's our counselor role, and it's an exciting one. So, Jordan, you talked a little bit about some of the regulations you deal with. I mean, sometimes people make the mistake of saying, like, oh, this is an unregulated space. But there are actually regulations in place that govern uh, some of the things you're, you're doing in your job, for example, already. Sure, yeah. I mean, in, in higher ed, uh, we're required to follow the uh, Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, which has been around since the, the mid-'70s, believe it or not. And uh, one of the components of the uh, FERPA is known as the law is the uh, the ability for a uh, a student or you know what we call nowadays a data subject to uh, have access to their educational record. So in this in this space, in terms of like what I mentioned before, in terms of uh, retention, you know, identifying students who are at risk of not succeeding, having that student have access to that data that that the school may be using kind of it puts the school and the student in an uncom uncomfortable position. So th that's kind of some of the stuff that we've been sort of wrestling with in the higher ed sector, using this uh, technology and balancing it with the, the rights of, uh, you know, data, data subjects. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time here. I just want to ask you guys one, one last question. There's a growing number of discussions around this whole topic. I guess I'd just like to ask you if you think we're asking the right questions or talking about the right things as far as kind of like thinking about governance and, and how do we move forward in a way so that we can use these technologies in a way that's, that's beneficial for, for society. And James, I'll let you go first. I don't think it's a matter of like the, the perfect questions. It's more incorporating everybody into the discussion. We're, we're still moving somewhere, and it's, it's just not been determined yet. What would be concerning would be that balkanization between different people who are involved in the process. So if you've got engineers who aren't communicating with privacy, people who aren't communicating with the lawyers who are concerned with disparate impact or some of the protected classwork, if those conversations aren't happening, you're going to come up with a very different process and approach. And maybe more work for attorneys on the back end and trying to yeah. quote-unquote fix things. But we're working on that paradigm right now. The example is, of course, the self-driving cars. We're working toward a uniform standard. That's where things are going to go. I think when it comes here, that's what's in the process, too. You're getting people in the room. They're starting to have those discussions. They are earnest, and they are devoting this time. It's not, it, it's not being recompensed in the same way. We are, are building that future foundation and trying to think actively and intelligently about what we've got. Yeah, I love that answer about bringing more people into the discussion. And, and I think arguably that includes all members of society, really. I mean, we, we really need people to understand what's behind this and not just at a headline level. Uh, Jordan, your thoughts? Yeah, and I mentioned this during the panel. I, I think the biggest challenge we have as Americans is the fact that we have uh, you know, 50 different states. We don't have a lot of uniformity in terms of, of how our uh, laws react to uh, you know these emerging technologies. In so some of these sectors, we have the benefit of the the commerce clause, but in other sectors such as insurance, you're looking at 50 different states possibly having a say in how AI is implemented in that in that industry. I think that is a big uh, issue uh, in terms of uh, us as uh, as Americans. 
Yeah, well, that, that raises a whole other set of complexity, just thinking about the different jurisdictions. And, and already we're seeing law that has extra jurisdictional effect, like thinking about GDPR and now the California Consumer Privacy Act, the way that's operating. So there's a whole other layer about thinking about how do we think about, um, you know, international governance in these questions. And, and to be clear, these algorithms are borderless. And, and some of the discussions have been, well, do we really go down this road? How do we deal with biometrics? How do we deal with privacy? And there are societies in this world who aren't confronting the same type of ethical dilemmas where they're looking at them differently. The algorithms they build are going to be just as effective. So we have to look carefully at this and say, are we going to be competing by not doing things and trying to stop what's essentially a data lake that's awash over everything, or are we going to compete by being better? And, and that's what we've done in the past, where we've, we've been able to put forward our standards because they're more effective, because they work better. Or are we going to leave these to other designers to, to tackle? And, and I don't have an answer to that. I mean, that's, that's part of what we're starting to confront in a lot of these discussions with all those stakeholders in the room. These are all such big, important questions. And I hope what both of you suggest that we get more people engaged in these discussions. I, I hope that, that plays out. So thank you so much for joining us today. And it looks like we've reached the end of the road for our episode. But I, I, I want to thank our guests, James Shear and Jordan Thompson, uh, for, for sitting down, joining us today. And can you just, if our guests want to be able to follow up and, and uh, be able to reach you guys, what's the easiest way for them to do that? You can email me at J-S-H-E-R-E-R -E -E at bakerlaw.com, B-A-K-E-R-L-A-W.com. No privacy issues. I'm, I'm out there and easily searchable. Okay. No automatic bot responses there? On there? No, no. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll see if you can distinguish. That's why <laughs> okay. I'm built in Turing oh, all right. test. Okay. Excellent. And, uh, you can reach me at uh, Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N dot Thompson, T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N at N-Y-I-T dot E-D-U. Excellent. Thank you again, Jordan and James. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate us and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. I'm Dan Linna. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.